0: Well, we're continuing on this morning in Hebrews, so if you will turn there with me to chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through to 6. So um, this has been very encouraging. Uh, you'll notice here that, um, again, we're, we're, we're looking at another topic where uh, the writers already talked about comparing Christ to angels. And now the comparisons made between Jesus Christ and Moses And really what we have here in verses 1 to 6 is the foundation or the premise in which Moses is compared to Christ. And then from verse 7 all the way down to the end of the chapter to verse 19, it's exhortation. It's a call to respond to the truth in verses 1 to 6. So let's just read this together from verse 1 through to verse 6. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers... For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word again this morning. Lord, we do not take it for granted. We are so mindful that countless generations before us have not had your word, have not been permitted to have your word. And in fact, many have been placed in jail for having your word. Lord, we want to thank you for the freedom that we have to to not just have it in our language, but to have it in our possession Lord, it is an honour and it is a joy and Father, I want to ask for your forgiveness for the fact that we do not treasure it as we ought, that we do not hide it in our heart, that we do not live by it as we should. Father, we know that countless generations who were deprived of it would give an arm to have what we have and would probably look on in despair at the flippancy in which we have towards your word. We pray for your forgiveness. We thank you that we can receive that forgiveness. And we ask, Lord God, that you would renew afresh our love for your word and a, an appreciation and a great valuing of what it is that we have in our possession. And Father, we know that these aren't words on paper, but these are words from your mouth recorded on paper. And we thank you for the precious gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has come to us through your word which has revealed the pathway to salvation. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illuminates the truth of your word to our hearts and minds and who has caused us to be born again. And Father, we thank you for placing us at that narrow gate and for leading us down that narrow pathway to salvation. We thank you that you've taken us off of that broad way that leads to destruction and for giving us life. Father, we thank you for the great responsibility that we have to press on, to keep fighting the fight, to keep running the race, to keep laying aside every weight and encumbrance and the sin which so easily clings to us. We thank you that we can look to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we run this race for your glory. And Lord, we would pray and ask that you would continue by your grace to remove The weights, the encumbrances, the impediments, the idols, and all things which would rob us of our love and devotion to you. We thank you that you forgive us. We thank you that you are merciful and gracious. You are mindful that we are but flesh and that we are weak. But Father, we pray all the more that you would help us to be wise, help us to be good stewards of that which you've entrusted to us. The great calling which is laid at our feet, may we take it seriously. May we be moved by the weightiness of it. And may we give our all to run this race for you as ambassadors of the gospel. Father, we want to thank you for this time that we have together. I pray and ask, Lord God, that you would move amongst us, bringing conviction regarding our own sin, our own shortcomings, bringing conviction regarding our need to pursue righteousness, our need to keep your word and obey your scriptures out of love to you. Father, I pray that you would give us this conviction in our heart. May we never be apathetic. May we never be indifferent towards you or your word. And we want to pray and ask, Father, that you would accomplish all these things this morning. Open our eyes further. Soften our hearts more, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, you'll see from the title of the message this morning that this is really all about holding fast to Christ. And it's a message which in its context goes out to a people who were doing anything but that. They had found that under a small amount of persecution even, they were considering drifting back to the older religion that they once knew, Judaism. It would have been an easier ride for them, an easier way to live. There'd be no persecution. Life would be easy and peaceful if they only drifted back to what they once held on to. The writer to the Hebrews comes along and says, no, 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 no. You have to hold fast. You can't give up. You can't give in. You have to keep pressing on. And so this morning, we're looking at four reasons why it is that we must hold fast to Christ. And how it is that we can hold fast to Christ. And the first first truth is this. Holding fast to Christ, well, it is the result of recognizing the extent to which we are in Christ. That's where you begin. That's where you start. Recognize and know what your position is in Christ. Who you are in Christ. And I would say it this way, that if there is one thing which will cause any follower of Christ to drift away from him, it is not being aware of who they are in Christ. If anything is going to cause you or I to drift or to slip or to be tempted and lured away by something else, it is the result of us being not aware of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. That's why Paul in the book of Ephesians begins in chapter one, and you can read this later on and encourage you to do that. He has this phrase that he repeats over and over again. In him you have, or in him we are. And you see it over and over again in him, in him, in him. You see, we forget. We lose sight of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. And we've got to remind ourselves because the scripture reminds us of those realities. You see, we are not simply recipients of salvation who live this earthly life out and then drift off and go off into heaven to be with the Lord for all eternity. End of story. It's not as simple as that. And it's not like that at all. We are those who are the recipients of God's great love and God's great grace, where he has lavished his mercies and His love upon us in so many ways. He treats us as sons, not just as saved people who are one day going to go to heaven. He has blessed us in the heavenly places with every blessing. Now, I'm not going to spend this morning talking about what we have in Christ. In part, you should know this already, as, as I should know this. and encourage you to read through Ephesians just to get your head around this. But we know and understand that in Christ we have so much. And that's what the writer here this morning begins with in verse 1. He wants them to know who they are in Christ. I want to try and illustrate the importance of this. Think of it this way. If you, uh, perchance, uh, inherited some kind of gift from a, a great uncle or a grandpa or someone like that, perhaps a, an ornament of some kind, well, you would initially be thankful. You may not be entirely excited about the ornament, it might be just one like many that you have, but you would be thankful and you would say to yourself, well, you know what, that's a kind gift. It was kind of him and it's nice and maybe I can put it on the shelf with everything else. Without knowing anything else about it, you might treat it like you treat your other things. And maybe it looks like the you know when you go to the op shop and there's all those little trinkets that no one wants and they end up there and they all look the same, at least to me they do. Maybe it's one of those, but if that gift from your great-uncle came with a certificate, and if that certificate told you that it is a rare, one-of-a-kind, first-century artifact, that your uncle himself dug up in an archaeological dig, and its value was worth over $3 million, and your uncle, of all people, he singled you out, and he wanted you specifically to have it, how would you now view that thing that you once considered as common? It would immediately gain great value to you. It would become precious. You wouldn't just leave it on the shelf. You wouldn't consider giving it to the op shop. You'd probably hide it somewhere because you'd think someone's going to steal it and you'd lose that priceless possession. But that's just how things work. When we understand the value of something, we will treat it differently than when we don't understand its value. And that that relates entirely to Christ. When we know who Christ is and what we have in Christ, then we will value the relationship more than when we don't. It, there's lo, it's logical, isn't it? It makes sense. Now, if anyone has an uncle like that, please let me know. Uh, just by the way, it's not that I think about that often, but... Um, So the author of the Hebrews, well, he wants these readers to understand what it means for them to be in Christ. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That first statement there, that first title, he calls them holy brothers. And we saw last week The the way it was in which Jesus Christ entered into the Holy of Holies by sacrificing himself. He made a people who were distant brothers. He brought them near by his own blood. He's already explained that. And the idea of them being holy is exactly that. Through Christ's sacrifice, through his role as high priest, he offered himself up and he made his people holy. He washed them and he cleansed them and he dealt with their sin and he brought you and I, into the family of God. Then he goes on and he says that they, as a result of all of that, well, they share in a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling. Not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. This is the idea of an invitation. One that is given to someone and one that someone possesses. When does that happen? How does that happen? Well, he was telling them right then and there that because of the new birth, because of what Jesus Christ has done, You now possess a heavenly calling. It is yours. It is yours. The Bible tells us that at the moment of salvation, a believer's name is enrolled in heaven. We become citizens of heaven. Listen to Ephesians 2.19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And there are so many other passages which talk about this. Philippians 3.20 tells us that we are citizens of heaven. We go from being people of this world who are citizens of this world to people who now are citizens of heaven. And I like the idea of the fact that my name is in heaven's roll book. If you were to go there now and if you were to open that book, because I know Christ, because I am saved and redeemed, my name is written down. I am a citizen of heaven. And a member of God's family. That should encourage us. That should encourage us greatly. All this Jesus accomplished by dying in our place. We've been brought near by his blood. Listen to Hebrews 12, and we'll get there in about three years' time, I'd imagine. Um, Verses 22 to 24. uh, This wonderful picture of heaven and what heaven is like. He says here in Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly one, the heavenly one. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of who? The firstborn who are what? Enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So if you want to know what heaven's like, there's a a snapshot, a window into what heaven is like. By the way, the Bible also tells us that when one sinner on earth repents and trusts in Jesus for salvation, all of heaven rejoices. So heaven is a place of rejoicing. The angels are gathered in festal gathering. The Bible tells us here that we are enrolled in heaven. That is our home. That is our place. So in a sense, we can consider who we are and what we have in Christ but we also must stop and we must look forward and consider who he is to us and for us how does he function on our behalf who is Jesus Christ to us not just what has he done for us but who is he to us the writer says consider Jesus the what the apostle and high priest of our confession that is exactly what Jesus Christ is he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, an apostle, well, he was really just a a sent one. It's an official role. It's an official office. It's one who is called and commissioned to go out with a specific purpose. And it was always to act and function on behalf of God. God's message, God's voice, God's representative. That's what an apostle did. Jesus Christ was the greatest apostle of all. How do I know that? Well, the Bible tells us that he, like no other was with God and came from God to earth to make the Father known. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, the only God, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So in that way, Christ functions as an apostle to all. And what about high priest? Well, we spoke about that last week. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to jump online and listen to it again. But we saw there that the high priest functioned in two ways. One, he offered up sacrifices and offerings. And that's just what Jesus did. He was the once and for all final sacrifice for sin. He offered up his body to pay for all of our sins, past, present and future. But then as our mediator, he intercedes for us. He was born of a man and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands what it means to be flesh and blood. But he lives at the Father's side as that mediator between the Father and us. So he is the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Well, of our confession, what does that even mean? Well, the word simply means to say the same thing. When you confess your sins, you are saying the same thing that God says about your sin. You agree with God. And in the context here, our confession is our Agreement with God regarding the, regarding the gospel, regarding our faith, the faith, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and work. We agree with God in every way. It's our witness. It's our testimony. It's what makes us Christians. That is our confession. In 4.14 and 10.23, the book of Hebrews, this phrase is repeated uh, where believers are commanded to hold fast this is what we are to hold fast to our confession we hold strongly to it and we're told that we are to not waver we're not to waver in our profession or in our trust of our lord this confession is what we are to hold on to we're not to question it we're not to drift from it we are to hold on to it it is our anchor This is the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We are to hold on to this. But the writer moves forward and he moves on to the next point. And we could say it this way, that holding fast to Christ is the result of knowing that Jesus Christ holds the highest position of glory. He alone holds the highest position of glory. Now to you and I as as Gentiles, I don't think there's any Jewish people here this morning, but as Gentiles, we probably can't relate to this because here we have a comparison between Moses and Christ. But for the Jews of Jesus' day and even today, if you were to ask them who their greatest leader ever was ever and who their greatest hero is, they would all say Moses without a doubt. Without a doubt. But this is for good reason. Because Moses rightfully holds a seat of honour in and amongst God's people. Rightfully so. The writer understands this. And he doesn't come along and prove that Christ is the greater, more superior prophet and apostle by cutting Moses down at the knees. He doesn't do that because that would be wrong. He honours Moses. And he agrees with the Jews that, yes, Moses is faithful. Look at what he says. Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. He points out the truth. It's undeniable. Moses was faithful. He was a wonderful man of God, used of God mightily. If you stop for a moment and just consider how it was that Moses was faithful to God and God's people, it would do us well to do that. So let's look at this for a moment. It was Moses, as we know, who was miraculously delivered by God as a baby. You remember the story there in the book of Exodus? It was Moses whom the angel of the Lord appeared to and spoke to in the burning bush. Uh, It was obviously Moses whom God raised up to deliver the whole nation of Israel from Egypt through great displays of power, signs and wonders that the world has never seen before, the plagues upon Egypt as well. It was all through Moses that God did these things. We know that he also led them through the wilderness for some 40 years. We're also told that Moses' character was such that he was the meekest or the humblest man in all the earth at the time. There was no one like him. And I always look and I think, well, to put up with a bunch of grumbling, complaining people, then he needed to be pretty humble and soft in heart, otherwise he would have broken. But Moses was also someone who met with God, and spoke with God like no other person ever has. He spoke with God face to face. Listen to Numbers 12, 5-8. It says here, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and stood at the entrance of the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. So that's how God communicates with the prophets, through dreams and visions in miraculous ways. But then in verse 7, Moses is quite unique. It says here, Not so with my servant Moses. It's different from Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? See, Moses was very different from all other prophets. He sat with God and spoke with God and saw the Lord face to face. We also know regarding Moses that the law of God was given to Moses, who in turn would pass it on to the people, Moses was also the author of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. In fact, regarding the law of Moses, I just called it that, the law of God is referred to as the law of Moses. Over and over again, the Jews knew that and the Jews understood that. And so we come full circle and here you have a people who are Jewish to the core, who have placed their faith in Christ who have had to wrestle initially with exalting angels above Christ, the writers dealt with that, and now he has to deal with Moses, who is exalted above Christ in their own hearts and minds. He has to rightly deal with Moses. Now these Jewish people should have understood something very important, and that is this, that the Scriptures prophesied and spoke about a coming day when there would be a prophet who was like Moses but greater than Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15, this is Moses speaking to the people, and it says here, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And in that same chapter, there's more dialogue, and God comes along and reaffirms the same truth to the people. That passage there in Deuteronomy 18:15 well it's used in the book of Acts twice, and it's there that the apostles are actually using that passage to convince the Jewish listeners why it is that they must listen to Christ and how it is that Jesus Christ is that prophet who was to come it's him, he is the fulfillment. So you can imagine these Jewish believers well they needed to be ready to receive the one who was coming, the one who was a prophet like Moses, a prophet whom they had to listen to. They had to have soft hearts and they needed to make sure that they responded to this coming prophet just like John the Baptist did. you remember that? He must increase and I must what? I must decrease. When the Lord Jesus Christ came, the Jews had to be prepared to humble themselves, to lower themselves, and to lower Moses in their estimation of him. But the problem, well, here was the problem as I've stated already. The fact that someone could come along and be greater and more significant and more worthy of glory than Moses was a tough pill to swallow. It was a big stumbling block for them because they had idolized Moses. They would elevated him to a place which was higher than they should have. And this was always going to be hard for the Jews to accept. It was always going to be difficult for them to understand. You listen to the Gospels and you read the continuous statements made by the Jewish leaders regarding Moses and their exaltation of him. John 9, that that whole encounter of the man born blind. The Jewish leaders speak to that same man and they say, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Or John 5.45. These are Jesus' words. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have what? Set your hope. Their hope was in Moses. Their foundation was Moses. Moses was their all in all. So they had to get to the point where they would assess this clearly. And that's why the writer wants them to understand how it is that Christ is more glorious and more honourable than Moses. He says here in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Well, how and why? Why do you say that? Look at what he says. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. It just appeals to a a logical observation that a house might be glorious, a house might be wonderful, but the one who has built it, designed it, created it, put it together, well, of course that one deserves more glory and praise. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So when we come back and we draw back, we look at this, we could say that Moses was a steward and a servant in God's house. Jesus built God's house. He was the builder of that house. Moses functioned as a servant in that house, but Jesus was the one who built the house. Consider Hebrews 1, 2, and these won't come on the screen. He, that is Jesus, was appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. John 1, 3 All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in a spiritual context, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created in Christ Jesus. So here we have a number of verses, a number of references, basically getting us to realize that Jesus is the creator. Moses was created while Jesus was the one doing the creating. And there's a massive contrast here. You could also say that Moses delivered the nation of Israel on a military level. Uh, Jesus Christ created Israel and created every human being, and he came to redeem them from sin. John MacArthur says it this way, Moses was part of the house of Israel and an instrument God used in building it. To hold on to the forms of Judaism or to its greatest leader is to hold on to the symbol of reality or to an instrument of reality. To hold on to Jesus is to hold on to the reality itself, end quote. That's a great quote. And remember back to chapter 1 and the first few verses, we made the point that Jesus as creator, well, that meant something very important, that he existed before his creation did, If he was the one creating all things, then he had to have existed before the creation came into being. So Jesus Christ is the builder of God's house. So he, as a result, logically holds the place of highest honor. He has the greater glory than Moses does. So what do we do with this? Well, as I said at the start, you and I listen and we think, well, I'm never really enticed to drift away from Christ, and go off into Judaism? Maybe some people do, I don't know. Sometimes there's some secret meetings, apparently, in the Hebrew language, which there aren't, but people think there are, and they're tempted to go off into that. But generally, the average Gentile Christian isn't drawn away and enticed by the Mosaic Covenant or Judaism as a whole because we've had the truth. But you and I, how are we enticed? What are we drawn away by? Well, friends, you know this all too well, just as I do, that you and I can live and be enticed by many other things. We can live with other things taking the highest place of importance in our lives. Uh, Things other than Christ can be our treasure. We can place the highest value on possessions, um, status, rank, whatever it may be. We can make an idol out of anything. And we can diminish Christ in this way. That was true of Demas. You remember Demas? He walked with Christ. What does the word tell us? He loved the world and forsook the company of the disciples. He walked away from the faith because he loved the world. What about the rich young ruler? Jesus offered him eternal life. Jesus knew that that young ruler was controlled by money and wealth. And that money and wealth were more important to him than Christ and God. So Jesus put his finger on it and said, give all that away, come and follow me. Renounce your idol, give up your greatest love and make me your greatest love. What did he do? He walked away sorrowful. Our hearts can get attached to anything. Friends, we have to get to that point where Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price, where he is that hidden treasure where he is of the greatest value that we will remove anything from our hearts and not be held by anything because he is so great and he is so grand. We'll talk more about this in a moment, but let's press on to the third point. And I want to say it this way, that holding fast to Christ is the result of knowing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God Almighty. We will hold fast to Christ when we understand who he is. When we understand that he is God Almighty's son. He's one and only son. Look at what verse 5 says. Verse 5 tells us this. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house. There we have that idea that he was faithful again. And the emphasis here is on identifying him as a servant. You see it there. He was faithful as a servant. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. That word servant, it's not the common word we would use there. It's used here once and once only in all of the Bible. And it refers to a specific kind of servant. It was someone who was a faithful friend. Whether they were free or held as a servant, they out of love and loyalty served their master. It's a unique one-of-a-kind word. It appears only here. It is completely different from the common servant or the domestic servant. That was Moses. He was faithful and loyal in love to God. And that is wonderful. (coughs) We're told here that as a faithful servant in God's house, he was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. What does that mean? Well, this is really interesting because what the writer is saying here is that Moses spoke of Christ. Moses spoke of Christ. Moses spoke of that which would come in the future. Moses spoke of prophetically of, of the coming of the Lord, of the coming of the Messiah, of the great prophet who would be just like him. Listen to John 5.46. Jesus makes his connection when speaking to the Jews. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You understand the logic there, don't you? If a person truly, genuinely, with faith, believed the writings of Moses, the natural follow-on to see Moses speaking of Christ, so that when Christ appeared, there would be a natural transitioning of faith and following to Christ. It wouldn't be hard, it wouldn't be difficult. If someone has seen Moses and understood Moses correctly, they would immediately follow Christ and identify Christ as the Saviour, as the Messiah. The passage tells us that one day, on the Day of Judgment, Moses will actually stand the one who these Jews think is their saviour and their safeguard, he will stand and he will testify to the fact that he proclaimed and they heard him, but they did not believe his words. Verse 6 tells us that by comparison, well, Moses is a servant in God's house and that's wonderful. Look at what verse 6 says regarding Christ. But Christ is faithful over God's house as, not as a servant, but as a son. And you see the comparison. As great as Moses was, as faithful and as special and as loyal and as loving to God that Moses was, he was not a son. It is only Jesus Christ who is a son. And there is a big difference here. No amount of loving faithfulness to God's house, no amount of commitment that Moses could offer, could change the fact that he was not a son and that Christ was a son. This is about status. This is about right. This is about rank. This is about everything. This is very important. We press on to the last point, And that is this. Holding fast to Christ is the responsibility of every believer. And this is very important to understand. Holding fast to Christ is the responsibility of every believer. If you name the name of Christ... If I name the name of Christ, if I say I'm a Christian, if I've made the call and the choice to be a disciple, then I have a great responsibility to hold fast to Christ. Not to say, Well, I'm saved and I'm just going to cruise on through life and God will get me there in the end. Not at all. We have a responsibility to be engaged in the sanctification process, to be doing the one another's of Scripture, to be putting off sin and to be putting on righteousness. The Bible tells us here in Hebrews that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And he goes on to say, and we are his house. We are his house. Notice the connection there between God's house and his house. They are one and the same. Again, it's it's an insight into the deity of Christ. Colossians 1.18 tells us that he, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We are his possession. Scripture tells us that we were purchased, redeemed, washed, cleansed by his blood. And that is the great responsibility of those who lead the body of Christ. In a coming day, he will return to collect his bride. And she ought to be spotless. She ought to be well fed, taken care of and nourished. That's the job of the elder, the pastor, the shepherd. And you would think that when these believers understood this truth that they are God's house and that they are Christ's possession, Christ's house that they would be overwhelmed and that this truth alone would stop their backsliding that this would stop them in their tracks because of who it is who has called them and saved them. It's not Moses' house, it's Christ's house. We are his possession. Again, I said it before but We're not going to struggle with this. We're not going to struggle with the wrestle between Judaism and Christianity. We're not going to be drawn back and drawn away into following Moses and the law because we do not understand this. We were never once in that, so it's unfamiliar to us. But again, at a heart level, you and I can easily be lured by almost anything. It is true that Christ can be superseded in our hearts, by the love of the simplest of things. At the same time, there might be no change in our theology. There might be no change in our religious practices or responsibilities. We might be doing the same thing that we have always done and we might be believing the same things that we have always believed. But it is possible that the heart can have its affections on other things at the same time. Outwardly, we might be quite active and very affirming of truth. We might even go on the offensive defending of faith. Yet at a heart level, the affections of our heart may be given to another. Maybe a way to illustrate it is to consider a, a family unit. To consider maybe, I was going to pick on a husband, but I'll pick on a wife. Because it's always a husband. Um, consider a wife who is in a lovely family. Uh, she's faithful. She's faithful. She serves in her home. She cares for her children. She gets their clothes ready for school. She makes their lunches. She helps to get dinner ready. When the family goes on holidays, she goes on holidays. She enjoys it. She celebrates it. She works at her job faithfully. But then at the same time, and this is possible, and this is unfortunately too common, at the same time she's seeing another man. You understand the gravity of that, don't you? On the outside and in practice she's doing what any faithful wife would but her heart is detached from her husband and her heart is given to another man. Friends, you and I can do this with Christ. You and I who name the name of Christ can on the outside appear to be his and we can affirm all the right truths and stand on all the right doctrines. We can be involved in the church, we can serve, we can even witness that we can be in love with things other than Christ. Other things can have our heart. Other things can grab our heart and hold our heart. And Christ sees that. And Christ knows that. And we think that he's okay with it. And the religions of the world think that that's what God is like, that God just wants you to jump through the hoops and he's happy. And you can go down the street and all you have to do is stick an orange in front of a statue and somehow the greatest divine being of all time is happy with you putting an orange in front of him. It doesn't work, does it? The Lord our God wants this. The Lord our God says in the Ten Commandments, what? You shall love the Lord your God with your external works of service? No, with all of your heart, mind and soul and love your neighbour as yourself. You know, those in Matthew 7, the, the many who in a coming day will stand before the Lord, who say, Lord, Lord, did we not? It is those who have convinced themselves that God is only concerned with our religious duties, us ticking the boxes. Listen to what it says, Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you understand the context here. They've clearly been denied access into the kingdom of heaven. They've been denied access into God's presence, into God's home. And they've thrown up an excuse and they've cried out. They've said, Lord, 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 Lord. And what, are the, what is the excuse they give to him? What is the reason why he should, they should be let in? What do they say to him? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? There's no mention of heart. There's no mention of trusting in Christ's righteousness alone. It's works. Do you see that? These are those who are in the church, who are busy, who are active, who know that one ought to be doing this and doing that out of love for Christ, yet their hearts are far from him. How do I know that? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you what? You workers of lawlessness. And you might look on and think, well, hang on, they weren't doing works of lawlessness. What I read here is prophecy in Christ's name, casting out demons and many mighty works. Where were the lawless works? In here. In here. The fact that they didn't know him means that they weren't born again. They'd never truly come to him for salvation, which tells us, That they were still the old man, the unredeemed nature, filled with all of its sinful thoughts, attitudes, desires, motives. See, we know that external sins come from the heart. And the heart must be washed, cleansed and forgiven and created anew. The Lord looks on the heart and he desires us to worship him from the heart. See, friends, spiritual decline, this sliding away, this drifting away, well, it starts deep down in the heart at a foundational level. It's kind of it's like cancer, and it's not often noticed until the symptoms cause problems. So someone who's about to walk away, and, and you know, you've know you been in church life long enough to know those people who just one day say, I'm done. I'm walking away from Christianity. I'm walking away from my marriage. I'm walking away from everything I've held on That choice started two, three, four years before. It started with a very small decline and it increased and the conscience got quieter, the conscience was squashed, the ears got dull and the eyes got dim and all of a sudden a person gets to that point way down the track where they walk away from Christ. So we need to be mindful of this. Matthew 10.37, Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he, he starts by talking about things that we naturally love the most in this life. Father, mother, well, they're right up there. Son or daughter, well, they're kind of next, I would say. But then, verse 38, the pinnacle of things that we love and people that we love is self, right? Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So the question is, are we going to be mindful of who or what gets our affections? For the Jews, it was Moses. And I'm convinced that the reason why they were drawn to Moses and they were drawn to finding security in Moses was because it was a way of jumping through the religious hoops and feeling assured that they were saved, part of Israel. They didn't love Moses just because he was a hero. They loved the religious system behind it more than anything. But for you and I, well, friends, we can give our hearts to a whole great many things. I pray that we would take this seriously. We press on to verse 6, and here we have essentially the start of the exhortation, the, the plea for a right response, a right reaction. It says here, We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. How do we understand that? And I'd love to do a whole message on that because that's tied in with the assurance of salvation. It's tied in with the question that's often asked, can a person lose their salvation? We're certainly going to get to this in chapter 6. But let me say it this way. A genuine Christian is one who is in a continual state of living as a disciple of the Lord. Someone who has actually been born again and redeemed is in a continual state of living as a disciple. Not perfectly, not with sinless perfection, but when one sins, they repent. But one is always striving to obey and please the Lord because they are already saved. If one is habitually not, if a person is habitually not living in a state of discipleship where he takes the commandments and obeys them and repents, then I would question that, one, that person's profession of faith. Is it legitimate? Is it real? Because one who has been brought to life, made alive by the Spirit of God, because of the impetus of the Holy Spirit within you and the newness of life, you will want to press on. You will want to strive and follow the Lord on his path to that celestial city. We'll be like Paul, right? That's what Paul did. He was alive. He was born again. And he persevered. He pressed on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. Again, not with perfection, but by repentance and obedience. That's just what he did. You see, we need to focus on this in one particular way. We need to realize that we have a responsibility. Even though we're redeemed and we're saved, we have a responsibility to press on. That's our calling, to press on, to keep running the race. You see, it seems to be a conditional clause here, doesn't it? We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, I would say that this is simply an observation, essentially saying that you must prove that you are Christ's house, that you are redeemed by holding fast. Prove that you are his by holding fast, by pressing on. You see, you can't say that you are his if you don't follow him. It's an observation. It's a logical statement. These sort of phrases are made everywhere in Scripture. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's not a threat. It's not a warning. It's an observation. If you do this, then you are that. If you don't do this, then you are not that. It's almost like saying if someone does not follow Christ, if someone denies Christ, If someone hates Christ, then you can make the observation and say, well, they do not know Christ. This is essentially a statement of truth, not an offer to work for your salvation. Do you get that? This is a statement of truth, not an offer to work for your salvation. Again, theologically, if you are Christ, then you will hold fast, you will persevere. But if you are not, then you will be like the one in the parable of the soils, where trials, temptations, well they will bring you undone, because you haven't truly come to saving faith." Scripture, and here in Hebrews, there's a number of other places which speak of this uh, responsibility to hold fast, and I'll just skip through this quickly. Hebrews 3:14, "For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold on sorry, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4.14, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast, hold on. Now we would say this to those who are faithful, those who are already holding on. We would still encourage one another to keep holding on, right? But what do you say to the ones who are not holding on? Because the Christian life is a battle where we're engaged in the good fight. We're in running the race. We have a high and holy calling. What do you say to the one who's not holding on? who's not running the race, who's not holding fast. Friends, all we can do is warn. All we can do is plead with them to re-engage in the battle, to get back to what they were once doing. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is doing here. He's just telling them to pick up the, the shovel again, to keep going, to put their hand back on the plow, to do what they once did, to keep running the race, because then that is indicative that you know him and you have been born again. So, friends, holding fast to Christ, well, it's the result of recognizing the extent to which we are in Christ. We've seen that. It is knowing that Jesus Christ holds the highest position of glory. It is knowing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God Almighty. And it is holding fast to Christ is the responsibility of every believer. So I pray that this would be an encouragement, a challenge uh, for you and I to examine ourselves. Where are we at? Are we holding fast or are we drifting? And if we're drifting, then we need to come back to the, the very start of where we started to let go and refocus our attention to Christ. So I pray that Jesus Christ would be magnified in your hearts and minds as he is in mine. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this opportunity to open your word. Father, I pray that there would be none who drifts away from you, the living God, I pray that there would be none who has an evil, unbelieving heart falling away from you, the living God. Lord God, we pray that you would cause each one of us who knows you to honour you, to live for you, to fight the good fight and to dramatically and radically remove from our lives anything which would slow us down in the running of the race. Lord, may you continue to work out your will in our lives. May you revive us according to your word. Magnify your son to us, we pray. And we give thanks to you this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen.